Well, you can grab a seat. And welcome, parents. Man, I, I'm really excited uh, to have everyone here today. I'm excited that we've got you know, people without parents. We've got people with parents. It's great. Uh, don't feel ashamed if your parents don't love you enough to be here. Uh, maybe... <laughs> Maybe one day, right? Maybe if you just get that grade on that test, they will. But we'll see. Uh, Man, I'm excited to have us all here. I'm excited to have this uh, family moment. Uh, And so to honor that, uh, in light of the fact that it is Parents Weekend, I thought maybe we could take a moment uh, to look back. And and look back at that time, that that special moment, when we all saw our favorite uh, feline-based parent, a man, a, a, a lion, by the name of Mufasa, get trampled by wildebeest. Poopy, you sad? Mufasa died? You okay? You want a hug? You want to go sit with daddy? Come on, baby. Come sit with daddy. Come on. Just, just to take a moment and appreciate that face that we all had at one point, right? That was the moment that we all found ourselves where we were looking at Mufasa and we knew he was gone. We did, but, but Simba just wouldn't come to grips with it. And, and so even as we knew, man, Mufasa, it's over. We, we were just hoping against hope that Simba wouldn't do it, but he did it. He, he, he tried to lift that paw, right? Simba puts his head under the paw. Dad, why don't you get up? And we're like, no, right? That, that's a moment. That defined my life, I'm assuming, uh, has dramatically shaped the rest of us. Uh, but it really probably didn't affect anyone as greatly as it affected Simba, right? Because from that point on, because of that moment, because of that experience, Simba's entire life was changed. It, it drove him for the rest of that movie. First, it drove him into isolation, into running from his problems. But eventually, it drove him back to Pride Rock, back to that land to try to bring uh, order back to uh, the civilization of animals, that is nature. Uh, But he was driven by this. Even after Mufasa's death, something about his life, something about the way he influenced Simba carried forward. He left a powerful legacy that spoke beyond his death, that changed lives around him. And the truth is that we've all had those types of relationships. We've all had someone influence our life in a powerful way, whether it was a parent or a teacher, a sibling, right? We've all had that person or those people who have done something or said something or have lived in such a way that it dramatically influenced the direction of our life. Hopefully they didn't have to make their point uh, by getting trampled by wildebeest. That would be terrible. But for the most part, there, there's some moment, there's a conversation or, or maybe just a gradual uh, span of years where we learned and grew because of that person's legacy. And there's something deep within us that wants to have that same legacy. There's something within us that, that wants to have our name remembered, right? Our life to be memorialized. We want our name on on that building, or we want our face on that wall, right? We want to be remembered in some capacity, and yet, is the best we can do having our name on a building? Like, is the best the best that we can do, is it really to have, you know, the, the new dorm on campus named after us? Is that the best that we can do? Is the best we can do to have our face on some wall? As believers, what legacy are we trying to leave? 
What legacy are we called to create and build during our life? What legacy are we called to have that will speak beyond our death, that will change lives of people around us? What is it? All semester, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews. And we've been walking week in, week out in an attempt to better understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That's what the whole book is about. And as we've been walking through this book, we find ourselves in the midst of a culture that's constantly telling us that we, man, are the best and we deserve the best. And so we want to gather the best things. We want to know what's best. And yet what we find in the book of Hebrews is that no matter what anyone thinks or says or does, that Jesus Christ is better. He's better than anything this world has to offer. He's better than the idols that we create. He's better than the identities that we wrap ourselves up in. He's better than the uh, heroes of our past. He's better than the religion that we can try to line up under. Man, he's better than all of these things. Chapter by chapter by chapter, the author has been unpacking how much better Christ is is and what we see today, where we are this morning, is in chapter 11. And what we're going to see is the author explaining that the greatest legacy that any believer can leave, the greatest legacy is created out of a living faith in Jesus Christ. A life of living faithfulness towards Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is better than any other legacy we could hope to create on our own. He is. And as we're getting into this chapter, remember, we say this week in, week out, we've got to remember our context. We have to remember the context of this book in order to understand the content that we're reading within it. And so what we see in chapter 11 is he's still addressing this audience that is most likely a group of Jewish believers in the early 60s AD. And so he's talking to people of faith. This is important. These are people who have uh, placed their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. And these people are then trying to live in such a way that reflects that faith. And so he's telling them to cast aside these idols, cast aside these inferior things, and hold on to Christ. He's told them, especially in the last few chapters, 6 through 10-ish, he's been telling them, look, you need to hold on to this faith. You need to press towards this faith that you have. And so he's finding himself in chapter 11 wanting to just make sure that everyone really gets it, that they really understand the point that he's bringing across. And so he steps back a little bit and he grabs that word faith. And he says, okay, well, what really is this? What is the faith that I'm speaking of? And so he starts off chapter 11, verse 1. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The author kicks off saying, look, I don't know what you've heard about faith. I don't know if you think it's just this like one in a million shot hope. I don't know if you think it's just like uh, everything seems lost, but you're just going to, you're going to have faith anyway. He says, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about blind, foolish faith. He says, I'm talking about a conviction. I'm talking about an assurance. Biblical faith is one that is not asking or thinking, oh, well, maybe it could happen. Biblical faith says this will happen. I am certain of it. I'm eager for it. We see this this, uh, grounded, rational belief. The the word that's used uh, is pistis. The Greek term for faith, pistis. And what it's bringing across is this idea that you are so certain. Sometimes it's even used in the illustration of someone standing underneath an object. 
I trust it so much that I'm going to stand under this. That's the pistis that I reveal. It's that moment when you go to Dairy Queen and they make that blizzard for you. And the riots are starting to hand it out to you. They go, whoop. And you're like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? But it doesn't fall out, right? And they're like, oh. And they're like, look, it's so thick. Don't drop out of the cup. And you're like, oh, wow. But imagine, imagine if then they took that cup and just raised it over their head. Huh? How much more impressed and concerned for their sanity would you be, right? Like how... (laughs) How immensely trusting would they have to be of that blizzard to hold it over their head? Next time they hold it over, you just say, hey, that's pistis right there. And they'll really worry about you. But you see this, right? We see this idea. I'm so confident I'm willing to stand underneath it. He's not saying that our faith is blind or or foolish or a hope against hope. That's why he explains in verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He's saying, look, essentially, this faith affects every single aspect of our being. This faith reaches all the way back into creation itself. To where we look out at the world and we understand that it just doesn't make sense. That's the the defining question of our times, of of our, our existence as humanity. People look out at the world, at the universe decade after decade, generation after generation, and they ask themselves, what's going on? Like, what is this all about? This doesn't seem to make sense. And as believers, as Christians, we look back and we say, well, yeah, it, it doesn't make sense at all because it's, it's broken. Because this natural world, this visible sphere that we live within, it was created, it is influenced by things that are not visible. We look back and we see this through time, through history. We we know, we see the evidence for this faith. It's a rational faith. We look back and we see the faithfulness of God. That's why when God, when he appears to many of the people in the Old Testament, when he pops up and he calls them to do something crazy or something new, he refers to himself not just as God, he doesn't say, I am God, listen to me. He says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Time in, time out, over and over and over again, he says, I'm the God of, ja- of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he doesn't do this because he thought those guys were just so cool, and he really wanted to kind of, you know, be known with them, part of the, the bro pack or whatever. Like, he is saying this because... It immediately calls into the mind of his listener. It immediately calls into the mind of that man or that woman who's having doubts, who's, who's being called to step out in faith. As soon as he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, immediately in their mind, they think of the things that happen in those people's lives. They immediately think of the fact that this is the God who leads his people out of troubled lands into a promised land. He's the God who, who delivers you from, from enemies and from temptation. He's the God who uh, would deliver, would bring, cr- bring angels to earth to speak and minister on our behalf, they would immediately think of these experiences, these, these stories and these, these accounts of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and of the God that they served who was so faithful. God calls people to faith, but when he does, he reminds them, I am faithful. I'm worthy of this faith that I'm asking you to put out. I'm worthy of your trust. You can look back and see that I, I, I'm trustworthy, I'm faithful. 
Biblical faith is not grounded in just this hope against hope. Biblical faith is grounded in a past experience. An ability to look back and see, wow, the Lord has accomplished so much, therefore I'm going to be currently confident in what He's promised in the future. Our biblical faith is rooted, it's grounded in the past, and it creates within us a present confidence in our future. We do this, and we, we do this all the time. When I was growing up, uh, one of my uh, primary influences in life was uh, this fabled land of Sesame Street. And there were many people and animals and puppets that lived on Sesame Street. And I was just enraptured by it. I loved it. I loved getting to see the stories and the things play out and the lessons learned. And they would count and say numbers. And I'm like, I know numbers. And it was, man, it was great. And so I was so excited when one day I discovered that Sesame Street was coming to my town. They were going to be performing at my mall live. And I was so excited about that. And I immediately begin to think back on all these great stories I've seen them do, and Bert and Ernie, like those rascals, right? And I've thought about Elmo, and he's just so great. And I just immediately began to dream of, man, what's going to happen when they're here? What's going to happen when I see them face-to-face? Like, I can tell them all these stories. I can tell them about how they've influenced me. Uh, I can't wait to ride on Big Bird's shoulders. I saw kids do that, and I was like, that, I, I got to do that. Uh, I got to punch Oscar in the face, because that guy's the worst, right? Because he's a grouch. And so I, I was formulating these plans. If I see Elmo, I'm just going to tickle the oh, bejeebus out of hell. Like, I'm just going to tickle that guy silly. Like, I just, I couldn't wait to get to that moment. Why? Because in looking at that future, I wasn't just trying to think, oh, what, what's possible with Sesame Street? I was able to look back at my past experience with Sesame Street. And because I was rooted and grounded in that past, it gave me a present confidence in that future hope. I was suddenly so excited because there was a a history with Sesame Street, because I had a background with Sesame Street. When God calls us to faith, he reminds us, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can trust me. You can trust me. We look back and we see the faithfulness of the Lord in other people's lives, in our own lives. And so it gives us a confidence in what he has promised in our future. And, and this faith, man, this, this is something that is so certain, that, that's so assured. This idea of biblical faith is so just set that a lot of times we don't even think about it. This is the type of faith that honestly permeates every aspect of our life, but we just don't even realize it because it's so certain. We almost just take it for granted. But we place this amount of faith in so many different areas of our lives. Everyone right now, I can say, without even doing an interview, I can tell right now that you are all confident, you all have faith in the fact that you will eat at some point today. I see that. I see it in your eyes. You have faith in the fact that you're going to eat something at some point today, right? Hopefully on mom and dad's dime, and you're going to be like, let's go to everywhere, right? But you, you're going to eat something, right? And you're going to order three entrees and get two to go, because you're like, all right, let's Let's, let's, let's really take advantage of this. And we have that faith. You, I look out and I know that we have faith that your neighbor, you have faith that your neighbor right now sitting near you is not really trying to steal your phone, right? I know this. You have this faith. You don't think about it, right? It's not like you sat down and thought, yep, no one's stealing my phone today. Like you don't think that. But it's subconscious. It's just already there. You take it for granted. And I know these things. I can say these things with confidence because I see the way that you're acting right now. Our beliefs always determine our behaviors. 
Our belief always determines behavior. I can tell that you know that you're going to eat, that you have faith in that future meal because no one was outside before the service scrounging for nuts and berries and roots and Googling real quick to make sure it's not poison, right? No one was laying out small traps for the squirrels, hoping to just grab them. Some of you are like, actually, that's not, I could spice up my ramen pretty good, right? But we're, for the most part, right, we weren't doing that. I, I didn't see that. Your belief influenced your behavior. I know that you're not worried about your neighbor stealing your phone because no one's like pulling it on. Like, no one was checking, the, reading the Bible verse and turning to the neighbor and saying, this is mine. This is my phone. As you box them out, right? Like that wasn't happening. Your belief influenced your behavior to where I can just look out and at a quick glance, I can see the faith that you have in certain areas of your life. We place this confident faith in so much around us. The Lord is calling us to do the same for him. He's calling us to put our faith in him. This confident, grounded faith that Paul talks about in detail in the first chapter of Romans. Specifically, in Romans 1.17, Paul tells us that in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul recognizes the fact that our belief determines our behavior. Because he's talking about these two faiths. He says, look, you're going to see this righteousness from faith to faith. In other words, he's saying the righteousness of God. In other words, the right standing of God. The goodness, the perfection of God. It's seen over Time. It's seen from this initial moment of faith, this initial moment where I uh, place my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, from that moment when I become a Christian, when I become a part of God's family, to this faith, this faith that stays with me through my life, a living faith. You see the righteousness of God gradually revealed more and more and more over the course of a life. Because they are moving from faith to faith. And it's only possible because of that initial faith, though, right? This, he quotes Habakkuk right here, Habakkuk 2, which uh, some scholars say uh, it's the subject is Christ. Some people say the object is Christ. Either way, it was, in other words, it's saying maybe uh, Habakkuk was prophesying, saying that Christ, the righteous man, he shall live by faith. In other words, he will live a perfect life of faithfulness. And because of that righteous man, because of that faith, we are saved. Whereas some will say, no, this is referring to just men and women in general. And we live only because of the faith that we place in Christ. Either way, either way, we are saved by faith. And yet that life has so much more to go, right? That faith needs to carry us so much further. This is why uh, theologians and biblical scholars have come up with the grand terms of justification and sanctification. This is where it plays out. We say that you are justified, and it's a legal term that Paul used a lot in Romans. A legal term, justified, meaning that you are declared righteous. You're standing before a judge, and you are declared righteous. But the trick is that we are not righteous. We're broken, sinful people. And yet at 
that moment of faith, when I say, I'm going to put my trust in Jesus Christ, when I realize that, you know what, I, I can't fix the world, I can't fix myself, the only hope I have for eternal life, the only hope I have for existence beyond this world, the only hope I have, to have for a relationship with God, the only hope I have for true joy, for true satisfaction, for true fulfillment, the only hope I have is Jesus Christ. And when I realize that, when I put my trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, in who he is and what he did, then I am justified. I am declared righteous. Not because suddenly I've done something worthy of that justification, but only because Jesus Christ lived that perfect life. Because when I put my faith in Christ, he then gives me the righteousness that he earned. He gives me the perfection that he lived out. And it's a mystery how exactly that works. But I am confident and assured that if I place my faith in Christ, there's no more longer condemnation against me. As Jeff said earlier, there's no more shame. There's no more guilt. I'm free from those things because I have been justified. But as Paul says in Romans, as we're going to see here in a minute in Hebrews, I move beyond that initial moment. I move beyond that justification. I'm justified, but now I have this life to live and I enter the process of sanctification. Whereas justification is a one-time switch where you are unrighteous and yet you are now declared righteous, sanctification is a lifelong process that a believer walks through. A transition from broken to whole that is not completed until after our death. And it's a process that sometimes is very evident and sometimes it's not. But it's a process that we are all walking through not that we achieve perfection, right? Well, one of the best ways I've heard it described, uh, back in the 1600s, uh, there was a thing called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And basically it's a thing where a bunch of uh, church leaders and scholars got together and they said, okay, let's just set out in a very short way, how can we just sum up our core beliefs of Christianity? And so they get to sanctification and say, okay, well, what, what is this? And they put it so wonderfully uh, to the point that I still think it's worth quoting, even though it's, 400 years old, says that we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. In other words, sin is not abolished from my life, but I learn to die towards it and I live towards righteousness. I, I, sin is still there, but I am better equipped, right? It's not going to disappear, but it does mean that I can improve the ways that I face and fight it. That's what sanctification is. Sometimes we know it's working, sometimes we don't. But we're in the midst of it. But that sanctification is only empowered, it only works when it's fueled by that faith, by that living faith. We need that faith to push our growth. That's what the author talked about. Uh, we talked about a month ago in chapter 6, where he says that, you know what, if you are perpetually in a state of immaturity, if you're still a baby when you should be eating meat, he says, you could reach a point where God decides to take away your opportunity for growth. If you are perpetually in that infant stage, God could remove your opportunity for growth and make room for someone else. We saw it in the historical example of Moses, where he reached a point of disobedience where he was just so far off the map that God said, okay, that's it. I'm going to move you aside to make room for Joshua. 
Moses, you don't get to lead those people in the promised land. You don't get to experience that blessing. You don't get to experience that growth. Instead, I'm bringing up another to fill that spot, to fill that role. We need this living faith to bring about that growth. My daughter, Charlotte, was born almost exactly four months ago. And she has grown, oh my gosh, so much. She's changed. She, wears, she dresses herself now, uh, picks out. She wrote that. She, made, she drew that whole thing on her chest. She, she's incredible. And she has grown in so many different ways. And she's accomplished so many different things. But that's only because her mom and I have committed to help her in that process. Right? We are uh, fueling that growth. When she was born, that was a really huge, awesome moment. But I couldn't just take this newborn and just kind of put it on the shelf and be like, hey, we'll hang out next week? Uh, okay. And then leave. Like, I have to care for her. My wife has to feed her. Like, we have to clothe her and, and rock her and, and do these things for her. Because that's necessary for that growth. We're, we're the, the power, the, the fuel behind that growth. When I got married just over five years ago, I made a lot of different vows to my wife, to Susan. I promised to do this and do that. I promised to be with her through thick and thin, through sickness and health. I couldn't just make those vows and be like, okay, I'm going to go back and live with my roommates in that disgusting college squalor, right? Like I couldn't just go, uh, we'll hang out next week, right? Like I couldn't do that. Why? Because that would be a terrible marriage. It, yeah, you've got that wedding moment that's beautiful and incredible, but yet that's just the beginning of a lifelong journey, Our justification is beautiful and mysterious and a gift of grace from God, but it's not the end. It's the beginning of a life. It's the beginning of the process of sanctification. And we need to have faith. We need to be living in such a way that we are pursuing that growth. That's why in the book of James, he tells us that faith without works is dead. He says this living faith, man, it's useless unless you see actions come out of it. That sanctification is, is... is useless, it's pointless. Unless there is life, unless there is action, unless there is work, unless something is happening with it, unless there is growth occurring. I had a buddy in college named Robert, and we would play a game uh, every once in a while called Everyone Hates You. Uh, And we would play this game uh, in, in this way. I'll just set it up. We would be driving in a car, and uh, let's say I'm the passenger, and Robert's driving us around town. We would get to a red light, right? Hopefully, we're the first car at the red light, for reasons you'll understand in a moment. But we'll be stopped at this red light, and we're waiting. Uh, and the game Everyone Hates You is kicked off when the passenger in the passenger seat um, shifts the car into park, reaches over, turns the keys in the ignition, pulls them out, and throws the keys into the back seat. <laughs> because suddenly, the driver now finds himself... <laughs> With a turned-off car at a red light that hopefully you wait until it's like right about to turn green. So suddenly, he's at a green light, stopped, and his keys are in the back seat. So suddenly, you're just like scrambling. You try to block them when they're shifting in the park, but a lot of times it doesn't work. And so then you're scrambling. You're trying to get back into your back seat and find those keys. And in that moment, people are getting upset, and they're looking around. They're starting to honk a little bit, and they're like, whoa! And in that moment, the passenger gets to turn to the driver and say, everyone hates you. Everyone hates you right now. Why? 
Because that car is useless without fuel pumping through its body. That car is useless without that key turned in the ignition. Our faith is useless. James says our faith is dead. Our sanctification is useless unless there is faith behind it, unless there is change and growth. I mean, those things are intermarried. Justification, that is pure faith. There are no works involved except the work of Jesus Christ. But sanctification is this weird uh, combination. Philippians says that we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works both in us and through us, both to will and to work. It's this weird uh, cooperation between man and God. And we don't fully understand it. And yet we know it to be true. We can trust the words that the Lord has written down. And so we look at our lives and we think, I want that faith, right? I want that living faith. I want that process of sanctification to be taking place. And you know, if you're really asking yourself that, there's an easy way to check. Where is that faith? How do I know if I have that faith in my life? And immediately, all you have to do is look at your behavior, right? If our belief is truly determining our behavior, I look at my life and I ask myself, am I trusting the Lord and his promises? Or am I scrambling around trying to root up things that satisfy me in this life, trying to find those things that are secure for me? Am I trying to find that relationship? Am I trying to hunt out that job, that position that I really want, that internship, that that GPA or that organization or that leadership position? Do I trust the Lord and what he's promised or am I running around scrambling, gathering, hunting to find fulfillment in this life that honestly will not work, that will not last because our faith is only as great as the object that that faith is placed within. Faith is only as great as its object. I was so excited about Sesame Street. I was so pumped up, had all these grand plans. We show up at the mall. I'm getting to meet all of my greatest heroes. First person that walks up is Cookie Monster, and he looks like this. And so I look like that, cowering in fear, wearing him on my shirt in the ultimate disgusting irony. Because that Cookie Monster, I mean, let's be honest, he looks like he wants to eat the souls of children. More than he wants to eat a cookie. Like, that's, that's what he is. That is not Cookie Monster. I, that is not Cookie Monster. My faith in that moment was misplaced. That is a lesson that I learned early on. That my faith was only as good as the object that I would placed it in. And you know what? Cookie Monster wasn't worthy of that faith. He just couldn't quite cut it. And we find ourselves putting our faith and our trust in these things. We find ourselves scrambling around for that GPA or that job. Or, oh, we just want our family to look like this. We want this experience to look like that. But man, those things, they fail us. That job's going to end. That relationship's going to end. This world is going to end. The only thing worthy of our faith, the only object worthy of our faith is God. Is in the work, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why the author of Hebrews explains, man, ultimately our living faith creates the greatest legacy we could hope for. The greatest legacy we could leave behind is only found through that living faith. It says, for by faith the people of old received their commendation. And then he pulls out first example, Abel. 
was by faith Abel offered God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Ultimately, what carried forth in Abel's life? Was it the crops that he raised? Was it the sacrifice he was able to make? No. What was defining about who he was? What created the legacy that he's left for thousands of years, for millions of people to read about? It was his faith. It was his living, active faith that manifested itself in a sacrifice, in a work that he performed for the Lord. So that even though he died, he still speaks. How beautiful is that? Mufasa carried forward in the life of Simba because he believed in that circle of life as illustrated by Elton John. And he believed in a certain role of king. He believed that it looked like this and acted like this and and you needed to go to these places and not go to those places. Mufasa had a faith that carried forward into his son's life. That's what ultimately influenced Simba. It's what ultimately influenced all of the promised animals. We have such a greater object of our faith. Hebrews 11 makes it clear. It walks through all these men and women, one by one by one by one. We call it the hall of faith because it gives all these examples of all these men, all these women who had faith in the Lord. But what we often forget, we go through it and we're like, man, yeah, that's cool. Like, look at that person. Look what they did. But that's not the point of the passage. When we walk through this chapter in light of that very first example, in light of that very first illustration of Abel, what we understand is that Time and time again, what we're looking at are not just men and women who had faith, but men and women who passed that faith to the next generation. That's why he starts at Abel, right at the beginning. And then he goes to Abel's son. He talks about Abraham, then he hits Isaac, then he hits Jacob, son after son after son. After Jacob, he says Joseph. After Joseph, he goes to his sons. We see time and time and time again what's so amazing, what's so wonderful, what's worthy of commendation is not simply the faith, but the fact that that faith is passed forward, is passed on that it leaves a legacy for the people that follow afterwards. That's what's incredible about the men and women in Hebrews 11. It's the legacy of their faith. So man, my challenge to us, as we think about that faith, as we look at that faith in our lives, is where is your legacy? Who are you influencing? Who sees that living faith in your life? That's why if you're a a parent or if you're a graduating senior, I would encourage you this morning as you're leaving, we're going to have cards in the back that you can just take with you. All the rest of you are coming back, I know, week in, week out. But for those of you that this is like your one time, we've got cards in the back to just help remind you about that legacy that you can leave. For us, I mean, we, we really desire your, your time and your prayers. So maybe that card is a reminder for you to just pray for us, to pray for the fact that we're opening another campus here in the fall, the fact that we have all these students that come in year in, year out, that are constantly turning over, that are constantly giving us a new opportunity for that next generation, year after year. Please, maybe take that card and let it be a reminder to pray for us 
as we seek to create that legacy. Or maybe that card is, is a reminder to you that you could give to us in, uh, in a financial way. Where we have students coming in and coming out who are scraping by, who are on loans, who, who aren't able to contribute in a financial way. So maybe that's the way that you can give back. Maybe you're graduating, you're going to a real job. Maybe you can just give us a gift on your way out. Ultimately, there's a way that you could leave a legacy. We want to help you find that. So seniors, parents, grab a card. For the rest of us, we're, we're going to be here for a little while longer, right? We'll be here for a few more years. And for us that are still here, I would challenge you to think of the fact that you are laying the foundation of your legacy right now. You are. Whether you realize it or not, there are lives that you're influencing. There, is, there are people who are observing what you're doing and i got to ask you, is your legacy going to be one of faith in the Lord? A living faith that extends beyond just that moment of conversion. So as we think on these things, as we pray for these things, uh, we're going to take a moment. And I know we've got parents here who maybe aren't familiar, but uh, what we've been doing for the past couple months is we've been praying for each other on Sundays. Uh, it's something that I've really loved, that I hope that we've all really enjoyed and been encouraged by. The fact that we are surrounded by men and women uh, who are chasing after the same God, who are chasing after the same faith. Man, I, I want us to take advantage of, that, of this opportunity, of, of this moment. So rather than just coming and listening and then thinking to ourselves and leaving, let's take a moment and we'll turn to a neighbor. Grab one neighbor or two neighbors. Learn their names. And, and share with one another Okay, how, how can you trust the Lord this week? Be open and honest. You can be as vague as you want, as specific as you want, but share with that one neighbor, those two neighbors. Share, where is it most difficult for you to trust the Lord? Where is that area in your life? If your parents are with you, I would encourage you to probably grab them with you. Don't just leave them stranded. All right, but take, take a moment. Share, one or two people, again, Where is it difficult for you to be trusting the Lord? How can you be praying for one another, both right now and then this week? Commit to one another to pray for the week, for that person, that they would be able to trust the Lord in that area. I'll draw us back in together here in a couple minutes. Ready, set, go. Lord, we, uh, God, we we thank you that we are surrounded by men and women who will pray for us today. God, who hopefully will pray for us through the week. God, we... We thank you that we're not alone in this struggle. God, we're not alone in this fight. God, we're not alone uh, in our pursuit of, of knowing you, of making you known. God, what a beautiful thing it is that, to have community, to, f- to have fellowship. God, we, we thank you for that incredible gift. Lord, we recognize that there are still people in our lives who, who don't have that community. God, who don't have that fellowship. Lord, who maybe are struggling in their faith or God maybe don't have a faith to speak of. So if you would, take a moment right now and on your own, just pray that the Lord would would give you an opportunity this week or maybe even put a face in your mind right now, a name in your mind right now of someone who you can encourage in their current walk or maybe someone who you can share your faith with for the first time. Ask the Lord to not only give you that person, but to then provide an opportunity through this week.
Pray that right now.